Good morning to those watching on our live stream today. We're glad that you are with us, or perhaps you're tuning into a recording and seeing it a little bit after the fact. We're glad that you're here, and we want you to know that you are a part of this church and our ministry, and we know that many are not able to be with us during this time, and we, we do miss seeing you, but we want you to know that we, we're thinking of you and praying for you, and we are connected as the body of Christ through the Spirit of God. We are in Mark chapter 14 this morning, so if you've got a Bible, I'll ask you to turn there to Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, and I guess... Do we have Bibles in the seats? Can we refer to them again? It's been a while since I've had to mention that, but if you need a Bible, there should be one close by in a, in a seat pocket in front of you. And other than that, you've probably got it on your phone or whatever. So Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. This uh, story is coming to its climax um, we've been studying Mark for a long time now, and we are really getting down to um, the point of, of uh, the real heart of this message, of this gospel. And so I'm going to read first Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Father, as we come to your word today, may our hearts be open. And may we come before you with an attitude of worship like this woman. May you be the king of our hearts today. We worship you. Amen. So this passage breaks into three distinct parts. Uh, very clear, especially if your Bible has different headings for each one. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14 describe the chief priests and the scribes conspiring to kill 
Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes are conspiring to kill Jesus. Verses 3 through 9 describe a woman who anoints Jesus as a king with very expensive perfume. And then in verses 10 and 11, the third section here, Judas agrees to betray Jesus. He agrees to betray Jesus. Now, um, if you want, and you have a pen or a pencil, some people like to mark in their Bibles and some people don't. I've never been one of the kind that does a lot of marking in my Bible, but maybe you are. Maybe you've, you've got your phone now and you highlight things and make little notes. I don't know exactly what your, what your uh, approach is. But if you are of the circling or highlighting or writing in your Bible type, let me point out to you three key words, one in each of these sections that will define where we are going. Verses 1 and 2, you would circle the word at the end of verse 1, the word kill. The word kill. Then verses 3 through 9, the key word there to underline, circle, highlight, whatever you want to do is in verse 8. And that is the word anointed. Anointed. And then verses 10 and 11, the word that I want us to draw attention to is the word at the very end of verse 11, the word opportunity. Opportunity. Now, this is in the ESV. I don't know if you've got a different translation. Maybe you're still hunting for those words and can't find them. I haven't looked it all up in different translations. But if, you're, if you've got an ESV, that's, those are the three words that I want us to focus on today. And so first, in this first section, verses 1 and 2, the chief priests and the scribes see Jesus as an enemy, and they want him dead. They are seeking to have him killed. It says it's two days before the Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they are seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. But, they say, verse 2, for they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. They know Jesus is in town. They know this is the time to strike. But the, the timing isn't good for them because um, the city is crowded. There's lots of people. There's always un potential for unrest at this time of year in Jerusalem. And so now they're even more concerned than ever. With such big crowds, Jesus could easily slip away. He could hide. He could um, get lost in the street. So this is not good timing for them to be trying to kill Jesus. Even worse, it's Passover. It's the most holy time of the year. These priests and these scribes should be doing holy things, you know, like offering sacrifices and, and praising God and praying and doing what priests do. But instead, what are they doing? They're trying to kill Jesus. They should be worshiping God, not trying to kill him. But this is what they are doing. And it's, it's as if they're like hungry wolves now moving in for the kill, moving in by stealth, gathering around and finding a way to strike. So they might not consider the timing of this very good, but Jesus knows the significance of it. Jesus knows that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus knows that the whole point of Passover was to foreshadow this day. This time, 
when he would come into Jerusalem, when he would be the sacrifice. These leaders saw Jesus, though, as just an enemy to be killed. They couldn't just ignore him. They couldn't say, well, you know, he's, he's, he, we don't agree with him, but we'll let him do his thing. No. He was a threat to them. He, they thought he was a danger, and he needed to be killed. You know, there's a growing number of Americans today who see Jesus as an enemy. Not just as, you know, somebody to disagree with, but as a threat and as a danger and as something to be removed. And um, I was thinking about Rossford High School's most famous graduate. You know who Rossford High School's most famous graduate is? Madeline Murray O'Hare. She was a graduate of Rossford High School. Probably the most outspoken uh, atheist of the second half of the 20th century here in America. She uh, spent decades fighting Christianity everywhere she could in any court battle she could find. And um, just hated Christian faith as, as, as much as, as anyone ever did. She once said after a, after a debate, this was her quote. She said, Christianity is intolerant. Christianity is anti-democratic anti-sexual and anti-life. She said it is anti-woman and I cannot stand that. She said it is anti-everything good and human and decent and kind and love-filled and understanding. And then she said this right after that. She said, I used to have an intellectual hatred of Christianity. I think that is broadening now. I am enjoying hating the whole thing. Now, there's some irony here in her saying that Christianity is so unloving when she says how much she enjoys hating Christianity. But for her, Jesus is the enemy. In the 1980s, militant atheists were still kind of a fringe group, um, not getting a whole lot of attention. We knew they were there. We knew they were winning court cases. But since then, the, 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 the ideas of, of militant atheism have really spread Times have really changed. There's new charismatic leaders like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens who have great followings all across the world. And according to Pew Research Center, over the last 10 years, the number of Americans who identify themselves as atheists has doubled. The number of Americans who identify as atheists has doubled in just 10 years. Now, these are not the people who could just say, you know what, I don't really know or care about whether there's a God or not. These are the people who reject the very idea of God, who find God repulsive, and who believe that those who might seek to influence others for God are a threat. Their numbers are growing. And they face a hopeless future. What do they have to look forward to? What are they really living for? Ravi Zacharias once said, Having killed God, the atheist is left with no reason for being, no morality to espouse, no meaning to life, and no hope beyond the grave. Paul summed it up in Philippians 3.19. He says, Many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. Now, I didn't expect to be preaching to many atheists this morning, many enemies of the cross of Christ. I mean, you wouldn't be venturing out to church on a good day if you didn't think there was something to this truth about Jesus. But certainly during a pandemic, I doubt many atheists are coming to church um, at this point. 
But I'm mostly addressing the rest of us who, who need to know that the ranks of militant atheism are growing. The number of those who oppose Jesus uh, militantly is increasing. And, and, and we need to know how to engage with, with truth and with grace. And I believe the very strongest witness we can offer is what we find in the next section of this chapter. This woman who comes to anoint Jesus with oil. What a testimony she is to these who watch her. These who are conspiring to kill Jesus. What does she do? Well, she does the very opposite. Let's look at verses 3 through 9 now. Because here we meet a woman who sees Jesus as king. As a king to be anointed. Mark presents her with utmost respect and honor. She's given great praise by Jesus. This very morning, we, we are fulfilling in our midst this prophecy that Jesus speaks of her. Because doesn't he say it there in verse 9? Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. We are telling it in memory of her today. Who was she? There's so many questions that are unanswered, so many blanks that Mark leaves unfilled. They're at the home of Simon the leper. Who was he? I don't know. Where did she come from? We don't know. Why is she here now? What is she doing with this priceless jar of, of perfume, of this, this nard that, that comes from Nepal? That is so priceless, so valuable. A year's wage. She didn't get this from a peddler of essential oils who comes to all the PTO meetings. <laughs> this stuff costs a lot of money. They say up to a year's wage might have been spent on this one jar. Maybe she was along the road into Jerusalem a few days earlier when Jesus rode in on the donkey. Maybe she heard the shouts of hallelujah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. She says, this guy's the king. He needs to be anointed. Reminds me of the visit of the Magi who came to Jesus uh, as a young child. Jesus in such a humble and lowly condition. And yet these kings come with gold and with frankincense and with myrrh. There is something going on with Jesus. Something royal in the midst of such humility. Jesus is her king. Well, the disciples react as maybe you and I would have. They say, huh, what an extravagant waste. And they start doing the math. Okay, this is how much that would have cost. We could have fed this many people meals. We could have bought this much clothing to give. We could have helped this many people with their medical bills. We could have put this many people into, into good, safe housing. Look at what we could have done for the poor with all that money. And, you know, who can blame them? I mean, the Bible all over tells us to care for the poor. The Israelites got in trouble for not caring for the poor. Jesus came and said, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor. As Christians, as a church, we are to serve the poor. The, the mission statement of the Free Methodist Church for its first hundred years was simply to proclaim biblical holiness and to preach the gospel to the poor. There's nothing wrong with caring for the poor. But Jesus says, wait a second, don't stop her. What she is doing is good. 
and to be commended. Let me just look at, say, say again what Jesus said. He said, verse 6, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. You know, if we didn't know who Jesus was, this would sound rather arrogant. It would sound rather insensitive. It would sound rather self-centered of Jesus to say, well, you know, yeah, you could have spent that $50,000 to care for the poor, but it's better off that she dumped it all over my head. It only makes sense if Jesus is God. It only makes sense if, if, if he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Otherwise, he's got a very warped view of his own importance. So this event undermines the claim of all those who would say, well, you know, Jesus was a good teacher. He said a lot of nice things. We, we ought to uh, uh, heed his, his morality, but not pay attention to his claims to deity. You know, the number of atheists in America may have doubled in the last 10 years, but they were always still a fairly statistically small number. But the number of people who say Jesus was a good moral person and a great teacher, well, that's just about everybody. But do they realize who he really is? That he is worthy of the most extravagant praise. How can you call him a good moral teacher when he says something like this? C.S. Lewis said it famously. He said, either this, man, either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman, or something worse. He says, you can shut, up, uh, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's what this woman understands. We don't know who she is. We don't know where she came from, but she gets it. And she gets it better than the disciples do. He is worthy to be anointed with the most precious perfume ever known to the human race, ever discovered, ever created, and, and, and not just this little alabaster jar, but, but by the truckload. He is God. And Jesus commends her. So there are those who want to kill Jesus as an enemy. There is this woman who wants to anoint him as a king. And finally, there is one who sees in Jesus an opportunity. An opportunity. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. Because here we meet Judas Iscariot and we find out that he sees Jesus as nothing more than an opportunity. It says, Then Judas, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. There's mystery around this guy Judas as well. There's a lot we don't know about him, especially if all you look at is what Mark says, because Mark tells us very little about who he is. We know he was trusted with the money. We don't know why he does what he does. We don't know what's going on inside of his head. The last time Mark mentions him is when he betrays Jesus with a kiss, and then he's off the scene. But we know Judas started out with Jesus. And, and yet now we're starting to see his true motives come out. 
It seems that Jesus, um, Jesus was supposed to help Judas get what he wanted. Jesus was supposed to help Judas feel important or successful. And now Judas is starting to figure it out that no, this thing isn't going the way we thought it was going to go. Judas is an opportunist. And when Jesus doesn't do what he wants him to do, he finds the next opportunity to do something else. And this is the place of danger. This is the thing we must be aware of. Because we're right to recognize that with Jesus, there are all kinds of opportunities that open up. Opportunities for forgiveness, opportunities for eternal life, opportunities to be encouraged and to grow, opportunities for friendship and, 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 and community and being with like-minded people. I'm sure Judas must have appreciated the brotherhood of the disciples as they spent that time together. Opportunities uh, for us as families when we come to Jesus to have a safe place to raise our kids and, and to give back and to help others and to serve. And it's all good. But at some point along the way, a decision has to be made. Jesus has to become more than an opportunity for reaching some other end. The ultimate end must become his glory alone. He must be king. He must be the one we serve over all. He must cease to be the means to an end. And we start to see him as the beginning, the middle, and the end. And so we bow before him in our worship. We, we bow before him in our praise as this woman does. And we have to recognize that no gift is too great. No treasure too priceless. No amount of time that we could ever spend is too little or too much. Judas, though, Judas was waiting for the world to anoint Jesus as king. And so he was going to get in on that. And when he saw that that wasn't happening, he looks for the next opportunity to come along. This woman, on the other hand, who we don't know much about, somehow understood that Jesus isn't going to be anointed by the world, but must be anointed by each of us, anointed as king of our heart. And she teaches us what true worship is. Worshiping Jesus is the greatest good of all. She teaches us in this simple act that worship isn't practical. Worship isn't practical. It doesn't have to serve some other end. It's an act of pure adoration and devotion to Jesus. She shows us that true worship is never wasted. True worship is never wasted. We can never worship God too much or too extravagantly, or too wholeheartedly, or for too long a time. It's all for him. So as we wrap this up, I just want to say, let's not squander the lessons of this pandemic. We're seeing now that worship can be a little more costly than it used to be. That maybe it's not always comfortable. And this summer we had to endure the heat, and we had to endure the rain, and the wind, and the yellow jackets. And now we endure the inconvenience of masks and social distancing. And, you know, it's not a terrible inconvenience, but it's more than what we've been used to. But let's not be put off. Now more than ever, it's not about the opportunities that we seek, but about the one we serve. Gracious Father, thank you for sending to us our King. 
And while the world may not see him as such, and while some may even seek to kill him yet today, we want to be of those who anoint him with this precious oil. Father, help us to follow the example of this woman who you, your son declared, would be remembered forever and ever. Thank you for, for what she did. And Father, I pray that we will move beyond the, 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 the sense of just the opportunity to the, the, uh, to the place of full-hearted worship. That it's all about you and all to your glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.